0: Hey, it's Cindy Howes and Lizzie No
1: from the podcast Basic Folk Honest conversations with folk musicians. Basic Folk is truly changing the game with our well-researched deep dives that aim to empower the listener while fostering the folk community. I basically am writing worship music for youth group rejects. Maternal regrets and maternal guilt are universal. I try to make things that are beautiful and that are made with like
0: a purity of intention.
1: You can listen to Basic Folk on The Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network or at BasicFolk.com.
0: Welcome to Harmonics, the podcast exploring the ways music and creativity leads us to wellness and healing. I'm Beth Bears. On today's show, singer, songwriter, activist, and all around badass woman, Mary Gaucher. Oh, I love Mary Gaucher. You know, during this quarantine and these deeply troubling, scary times, I have turned to her music time and time again, specifically a song called Mercy Now that has really been sort of the song that I put on when I need to feel it to heal it, to cry, to feel less alone, to feel like I'm a part of something bigger. And over the years, I've just become such a fan. Her album, The Foundling... Really helped me at a time when I was exploring my own relationship to my family's roots and our story of adoption. And I am just forever grateful that I got to speak with her on this episode. And I think you will be too.
1: My father could use a little mercy
0: now. So, if you don't know about Mary Gaucher, you are in for a treat. Her name is spoken with reverence in songwriter circles. She's won countless awards from organizations like the Americana Music Association, GLAAD, and Folk Alliance International, and was nominated for Best Folk Album at the 2019 Grammy Awards. A Louisiana native, she has been releasing her own music for over 20 years, but her 2019 record, Rifles and Rosary Beads, one of my favorites, brought a whole new level to her art when she collaborated with the Songwriting with Soldiers project to put wounded veterans' stories to song. Mary's life is a tribute to what harmonics is all about. So I was so thrilled to speak with her as one of our first guests and... I just know that she'll become one of your favorite artists after listening to this episode. Without further ado, this is so exciting. This is my conversation with Mary Gaucher. just so madly excited about this because i am a huge huge fan of yours oh thank you thank you how you doing how you holding up in 2020 so far <laughs>
1: it's like riding a wild yo-yo um an out of control steroid fueled <laughs> yo-yo um up down up down some days are just fine other days i'm just sad and i i don't feel uh, Myself yeah. And I don't have any energy, and I just want to stay in bed and pull the covers over my head and try to make it go away. Uh, today, though, I'm just trying to keep it in the day. Today I got up, I uh, read the paper, I, I uh, did a five-mile hike in the hills outside of Nashville, and it's hot, and I sweated, Ooh. and I feel good about myself, uh, and... Uh, you know, I talked to the Americana Music Organization uh, president who wants me to do a panel for the uh, virtual conference this year on songwriting. So I feel like um, we're, 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 you know, everybody's in a pivot right now. And when, whenever there's a successful pivot and, and community building happens uh, in spite of not being able to be physically together, it gives me hope and it uplifts me. So I'm having a good day today.
0: I feel you on that. It's a, it's an up and down. Is that, is hiking for you sort of uh, your daily grounding practice? Like, is there something you do when you're having the day where you want to pull the covers over your head? Or do you literally just pull the covers over your head and say, and own it and be like, that's the day I'm having today?
1: Yeah, yeah. When it's happening, I don't, uh, I tend to acknowledge it that, okay, today is, I'm going to cry for no reason specifically, but I'm just sad day. And I'm super sleepy, even though I know I slept nine hours last night. And uh, well, look, I understand we're in a collective grieving mm. right now. Um, and I know this for sure because I listened to Bre- Brene Brown's podcast. Oh, <laughs> <She> yes. <has laughs> successfully articulated what she's so good at, uh, uh, what we're going through. And it's definitely collective grieving. When this is over, we're not going to return to normal. Right, Normal, as we once had it, is over. There will be a new normal, and we will adjust to it, just like after 9-11, mm. uh, but there's definite losses involved, and uh, a lot of the venues that I love and a lot of the the things that I've done for decades, I won't be doing them anymore because they won't exist, and there's a knowing inside of me, and there's a sadness around that, and so it's letting go, uh, and uh, there's a loss, and and so, yeah, we're we're in collective grieving, and some days I just feel the mm. sadness of it, and other days I can successfully pivot, hang sparkly lights, and like, okay, damn it, we're gonna find a way to make it through this uh, in, in, in community, because for me that's so important. I- isolation destroys me. I'm I'm an introvert. Now I'm not. Uh, you know, I don't. I'm not that. A lot of times I'll get social anxiety when I'm in people's presence, but I need to be in people's presence and I need my community really, truly do. I feel exactly the same way. I know you live performance.
0: That's I've been on a sitcom for 10 years. So we perform in front of a live audience every week. And this is the longest I've gone in 10 years without it. And my heart is aching for that connection and that coming together and all laughing. And and I know I'm sure you can relate to that as
1: well. Yeah, us extroverted introverts are, are um, are thirsty and hungry for the, the the back and forth with an audience. Yeah. Um, and a crowd uh, that uh, we we get to uh, to connect with from a stage, you know, um, the safety of the stage, but it's a genuine connection. And uh, boy, I miss that. And I miss the, uh, you know, going from town to town and the people I know in the towns and I see them when I'm in their town. It's not the day-to-day life of a normal person. I'm a troubadour. But I am connected to people in towns all over the world and I miss that life so much because it really is, is joyful. The, the traveling is hard, but once you get there, it's awesome. That was going to be my question was, is it ever like so difficult
0: to be away from home in your safe space as an introvert, extrovert? How do you how do you remedy that on the road? That's the one thing like I don't know if I could do that, the being away from the comfort. But at the same time, to get all different perspectives from different parts of the country and walks of life and then bring them together through music, which is so universally uniting, just like comedy, I feel like. And, and I love that. You say that it's a good thing, that it's a good practice, that you miss touring. Because I wonder if some people right now are like, hallelujah, I don't have to tour. Oh, they are.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. Well, the traveling is hard. And everybody knows airplanes are just like um, torture chambers. (laughs) And it's gotten progressively worse ever since 9-11. And now Mm. they just squeeze as many people as they can on top of each other. And it's abusive and uncomfortable. And... uh, you know they're talking about doing away with overhead bin space. Like, how do we deal with this with uh, soft cases and guitars and and so it's just uh, the traveling part is not fun. But once you get there, it's nice to be in Amsterdam. It's nice to be in London. It's it's great to be in in Rome. It's 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 awesome to be in in you know in Manhattan, settled into my friend Kay's apartment that. Is you know in the West Village, and we can walk Ugh. to the favorite little coffee shop, and we're there. You know the getting there sucks, but the being there is awesome. Mm. I, just thinking about live
0: performance, I, I've I've only had it happen to me once where I, I have panic attacks off stage, but I had one in my like opening night on you know critics New York Times was there. Uh, nobody knew, but has that ever come up in the live performance at all for you, especially as you're sort of success level grew or have you ever experienced that or is it such a safe space for you on that stage because talking to you it feels like oh I want more of that like how do you feel so safe all the time because now I always have it Mm. in the back of my head like is it going to be safe this time you know
1: Mm, right now you know that that could could happen switch I've gotten afraid on stage I, i've cried on stage uh the yeah. song has like it was like too true for me like I, I wrote it about one thing and now this thing is happening and that song mm. came to meet me in my new reality and it was like like okay all right so now she makes herself cry in front of pe- for my for my next <laughs> <laughs> per, per trick i'm gonna make myself cry in front of 300 people but uh uh, I have gotten afraid on stage. Uh, the last show um, before the shutdown, we played at the Triple Door in Seattle. At the time, it was, I think, the early week of March. Uh, Seattle had 100-odd cases, and it was right. the hot spot of COVID in the United States. And uh, well, the other show dates around that date, Portland canceled. We had a house concert in Seattle. That canceled. But the Triple Door didn't cancel. And so uh, we played it, and I was really awkward on stage. People came. I couldn't believe it. Um, the streets were a ghost town. Wow. Um, it was really scary. Uh, I, you know, I, but what I did was what I do. I mean, I just came out and I said, okay, this is like, are you people fucking nuts? What are you doing here? <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> Guys. And we laughed and we acknowledged the elephant in the living room. Amazing. Uh, and uh, we got through it. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, the 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 fear, it helps me if I name it. Like mm. this is like I don't know how to play to people during a pandemic. Like wha- what do I say? Like I know and you know this is the last live show that we're going to mm. be doing for a long time and you're not going to see in fact I think our face is still on their website and it's July. This was March. As the it, I don't think the venue's reopened. Right. No. And the staff was all in tears and they knew they weren't going to have that a job. job. The sound man, the manager, the kitchen crew It was you know, it was sad and hard, and yet we had music, and people were there, and we, we had to play. But I had to acknowledge. For me, it helps uh, to acknowledge and 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 sort of name it. Like, well, this is not something I've ever done before, and and uh, this is scary. But I know I haven't had a full-on panic attack on stage. I have had lots and lots of times where I forget lyrics. I just they're gone. Right. And I'll just say, does anybody know this? song out there can you shout it out and usually somebody will shout it out to me or or my uh, my partner jamie if she's with me will lean over and give me the line because i'm at this place where i i'm forgetting songs i've played for 20 years i don't know what that is either i'm super comfortable or uh, it's just early stage uh, dementia i don't know what uh, happens now it's just lose my place um I'm uh I, I'm okay with I doesn't I don't get I don't feel shame around that. I just feel like, oh well, I you know, I used to know that song, but now I need to be uh, reintroduced to it, you know, it's it, those moments of just humanity on stage, that an audience I learned a long time ago, it endears you to them, uh, them to you to see you. Like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> I just dropped my harmonica or, or uh, I forgot the lyric or I played the wrong chord. Like, this is a live show. This isn't a recording. It's human beings up here doing doing stupid human tricks, you know?
0: Yeah, that's, that's true, because on a sitcom set, the thing with the sitcom is you always have a take too, and and so they love when you mess up. I mean, that's why a sitcom audience comes, uh, and, and that's, like, the only reason they would come to see a live taping is to watch you be human, because they see you on a screen or they see you on the stage of, you know, wherever playing on their computer or on TV, and it's like, yeah, they want to... It's experiential, and your songs, speaking of, are... I mean, for me, and I'm sure for everyone who listens, there's such therapy to them. Uh, you know, recently I've been listening to The Foundling front and back. My, my dad and his brother were given up when they were four and five years old by their birth mother and adopted by my adopted grandmother. And recently I've actually developed a relationship Uh, virtually with my birth grandmother because I'm just desperate to know about that side and where I come from in the Oklahoma Plains and what that was like and there's also a little bit of guilt because my adoptive grandmother was the biggest inspiration of my whole life and she died when I was 13 so there's been lots of conflicting emotions coming up and I know it's hard to talk to my dad about it and all those things so listening to your music has really been therapeutic and I'd love to hear specifically about the process of writing The Foundling. And, you know, do you work out? Is it almost like therapy for you when you write music that heals oh, us? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, there's a quote at the beginning of that record uh, uh, that I put in, in, in the booklet. Um, it's from a book written by a guy named Gregory Armstrong, and the book is called Wanderers All. Ooh. And uh, he is the child was the, I think he's passed on. this book was re- published in the 70s, but I stumbled into it. I did research uh, for that record. I've got probably looking at mm, 50 books around adoption. Wow and the study of uh, adoption stories of adoptees. Um, so I really did a deep dive trying to find the voice for that record. And this book really spoke to me. He was the child of, of uh, the natural child of two people who were both adopted. His parents were both adopted. They found each other. Wow. Uh, and they lived, uh, uh, he said, as if they were uh, uh, a species apart from mm. people who weren't adopted. There's this wound that that they both carried. And so he made it his life mission to try to find his uh, birth grandparent, his parents appearance wow, uh, to try to heal that 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 place inside himself. So your um, your father was uh, f- he found his birth mother? He did, yes, and they had somewhat of a relationship, um, but
0: nothing. And he was lucky enough to meet his birth father before he died when they were older, him and his brother. But um, but for me, you know, we only knew little things. And and she's an incredible artist, and I'm an artist, so I wanted to connect with her on that level, and. Um, so it's been, it's been interesting, but then there's just that part of me that's guilty a little because, you know, my dad's, uh, adoptive mother was just the biggest influence in my life, um, as a child. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's such a complicated primal. It's, it's like being caught in a maze that you can't get out. Mm. Um, there's so many levels of complexity to it. I, I, uh, didn't understand anything uh, about the impact. I spent my first year in an orphanage and was adopted uh, when I was about a year old from a place in New Orleans called St. Vincent's uh, Women and Infants Asylum. It was a St. Vincent de Paul Catholic charity place. And so I didn't know anything about it. I didn't do any research or look. In, I mean, I just kind of took it as that's what it was. This is my family. Never thought about it. Fast forward uh, into my late 40s. And everything in my life kept pointing to, you have to do this work now. You have to fucking do this work now. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to betray my adoptive mother, who made it real clear that doing the work of finding my story would be a betrayal to her. She mm. didn't. She wasn't comfortable with that.
0: Wow. You know, she would
1: say sort of in a tone, voice with tone, you can do it if it's important to you. Oof. I could tell. Like, she, like... Like, um, it was a threat to her. Mm. I mean, I'm in my late 40s, you know, you're not gonna lose your kid. I'm like <laughs> almost 50. Yeah. But um, yeah, she it's a threat, And uh, but I had to do it. And uh, I did do it, uh, uh, I did uh, hire a search angel and uh, found my birth mother, it did not go well. And so the record is, 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 is autobiographical. Uh, but it's also fictional. So I tried to put my story into the ah. archetype of, of the superhero. If you think about it, um, superheroes are all, all, uh, adoptees or orphans yes. from, from Moses to Beowulf to Superman to Harry Potter. And why is that? Because you have to invent yourself. You don't get a heritage. You don't have a family story. Mm. Y- you get to start at the most powerful place, which is zero. And so you can, you can make your story, you have to make your story up. You don't get handed, well, your grandfather, you look just like your grandfather who was this and your, you know, your cousin, your cousin, Jeremy, he's, you got his, you, you got the exact <laughs> same nose, I'm sure of it. And there's all these things that get handed down when you know where you come from. When you don't know where you come from, there's a real wounding around that, mm. but there's also so much power and potential in that. And so I tried to approach both the wound and the power and potential. And so, uh, but I had to work my way through the wound first. And yes, I was deeply impacted by being in an orphanage that first year of my life. And and The Foundling is a song cycle uh, that explores that, both fictionalized and autobiographical together. I think in, in today's world, they call it creative nonfiction. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, and, and so... Um, to me, it was the, the 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 thing I needed to do as an artist, but also as a human being mm. to, to put words to this, to not be afraid of it anymore, like to go under the bed, turn the lights on, and let's have a look at the ghosts and the monsters. And um, man, I couldn't do it as a kid. I couldn't even, do, I mean, I was, like I said, late. I was into my uh, really staring 50 down hard before I had the Well, I didn't have, it's not like I had the courage to do it. It's more like life said, you're going to either do it or not, or this is going to cripple you. Mm. And I didn't want to be a cripple. So I had to do it. And um, the process was uh, transformative for me because it made me get an education around it. Mm. And it took it out of this is who I am to, oh, this is what happens to kids who don't attach to uh, a family well. the the attachment disorder that came from being um, in that orphanage was impacting my life at every turn, and I didn't even know I had that. Right. It's so deeply deeply ingrained. Oh, yeah. It's like if if I attach to you and you leave me, it could kill me. I'm just barely alive now anyway. And so if you have the power to kill me, I'm going to be scared of you. Mm. And I just, it's really a quite complex thing, and it's hard to explain to this day. But I have debunked a lot of it. That record was really powerful for me. It helped change me. And honestly, I think, and the story has a happy ending, even though it's a sad story. It prepared me to go into rooms and write with wounded veterans who are dealing yes. with PTSD. Um, I believe that uh, there's such a thing, and 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 it's just, I think, synonyms: adoption trauma. When when you are in the closed adopt- adoption system and you don't get any information on your ancestors, that that severing is a trauma. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, And it it impacts you like a trauma and you are traumatized at birth. It's called a primal wound. I learned all this through my research on the record. And so I started to deal with my own trauma and I didn't even know I had trauma. I mean, I knew I was a drug addict by the time I was 12, but I just thought, ah, like drugs. What the big (laughs) deal? It really didn't makes sense to me at the time or until like I was almost 50 that, oh, I was trying to medicate a trauma. Right. But working through it prepared me to work with veterans with PTSD. And fast forward 10 years after that, eight, eight, eight years after the foundling, I was sitting in rooms with, with young veterans who were in the very similar place that I was before I worked on my adoption trauma. It prepared me for that and made me able to sit with them uh, and not be afraid
0: that's amazing I've been dying to talk to you about this because I think Especially with trauma and PTSD, I do a lot of work with sexual assault survivors. My sister's a survivor, and we do. We have a program that's equine therapy for survivors. And one of the things we found most successful is that it's not traditional talk therapy. There's like this somatic reprogramming, the being out in nature, the connecting with the horses. You don't have to talk about the trauma at all. And I'd love to hear about with the veterans, like when you walk into that room and you sit down. Do they feel the same way? Like, I'm not here for therapy. You know, I'm here to write a song. Is that, yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. We don't, we don't say, tell me the worst thing that ever happened to you. What we do is go in with an instrument, sit down and say, how are you doing? When, when did you serve? What branch were you in? Where did, where did you serve? Um, Give me a little bit of background. How was, how was the experience? Is there anything that you want to write about? Um, And as you start to create a a conversation and and they realize you're not there to assess them, you're not there to diagnose them, you don't have a little notebook where you're checking off things about their personality, you really, as a songwriter, you're there to bear witness in non-judgment. And the important thing is not insert myself. I have no service experience. I can't say, yeah, I remember that time I was in Fallujah. (laughs) No, I've not been to Iraq. Um, and I've never been in the military. So bearing witness, mirror back with what they say, they start to feel seen and heard. And then the instrument, you start to play the melody of what you hear them saying, the chord progression of what you hear them saying. And that really validates their experience. And then they start to open up. And before long, there, there's it's really quite clear what their soul their soul needs to say something, and the song finds us. We don't really find the song. The song finds us. Wow. And uh, uh, they often say to us, um, I've never told my wife these things. How the hell you get me to talk about this? I'm like, I'm not. The song is. Rifles and rosary beans. You hold One particular session, uh, writing with a veteran, Uh, that I remember there's so many that I remember Uh, it gets quite emotional uh, and um, it brings out a part of myself that I really wasn't introduced to prior but apparently I have a lot of maternal instincts in me Um, these young men and women are in their late 20s some of them in their early 30s and I feel like I could you know very much be their mom and uh, I just want to hold them and protect them and, and let them know that, um, that I care deeply about how they feel. And so it's, it's an impulse of protection that I feel. And the story I'll tell, uh, it happens in a lot of these co-writes, but the story I'll tell is of, of uh, the co-write uh, with Joe Costello, who uh, I wrote the title track to Rifles and Rosary Beads with. Um, Joe, uh, his dad was military. So many of these guys uh, join up because their dads were military, and they want their dad's approval. And Joe's a poet. Um, he's a, he's an intellectual. He uh, uh, has uh, uh, a really big vocabulary and is extremely smart, uh, but not really a soldier. He's he got hadn't got that instinct. He he wants to serve, but you know he just really wasn't built for, you know Fallujah during the surge. But that's where he found himself. Um, and so as we sat down to write, I asked him what he saw when he got off the plane. Just give me the visuals, and I thought maybe we could start there and find a song there. And uh, when I sat with Joe, I think he was like twenty nine, uh, and uh, he looked fifty easy deep lines in his forehead. He looked down a lot. He was, he was traumatized. Um, and as he started to, in single word answers, say what he saw, um, he said that he saw uh, guys holding their rifles with white knuckles, and he saw other guys with rosary beads in their hands. Some of them were praying the rosary. Uh, and I said, hey man, that sounds like a title, Rifles and Rosary Beads. He said, yeah it does. So we put it on the top of the page and then he read a poem to me that he had written and somewhere in there, Rifles and Rosary Beads was was in the poem. And so we ran with it. And over the process of writing about an hour in, I couldn't, I just was so full of emotion as he told me what he saw in the streets of Fallujah, little kids in the street alone. The soldiers were told not to comfort them, like babies crying in the street alone. They couldn't comfort them in case they were booby trapped. Um, and, and and the things that they he saw it was just too much for me and i just put the guitar down i said i got to i got to cry and i just i just started to cry and he reached over and and hugged me and and we embraced and we just both let the emotion flow out of us we cried and then we went back into the co-write with absolute determination to get this song completed and uh, we we kept going and got it Uh, And when we finished it, we did the touchdown dance. We high-fived, we ran around the room. We knew we had written a really good song. And even though it was heavy and hard, we felt like we did something important. Mirrors frighten me Don't recognize what I see The stranger with blood on his hands Brother I'm not that man, and I, and I looked at his face after we did the touchdown dance and it looked like he was returning to his age. being pulled back into his body in a new way. The song had, had released something out of, his, out of his body that was aging him. He looked younger. And uh, that was, like I had to rub my eyes and look at his face again, like how the hell did that just happen? And then I started to experience it uh, over a number of other co-writes over the years with veterans. It's almost like pulling something out that's that's an aging machine and getting it out so that the face can relax those lines, the tendency to look down the the shame around trauma always brings shame because you aren't able to prevent it from happening and in that sense you feel like a failure and um, the songs can can turn that around and, and do something with it that, uh, I call it alchemy it's it's alchemy right and if we can if we can just just keep keep the container and keep going we'll get you this beautiful song that'll help you to articulate something that there's really no words for because that's the thing right when you have trauma you, it's ineffable what happened is there is no words but we can sing it right you know and so you can point to it and say that's how I feel and and that's why talk therapy is is a real problem with with PTSD and trauma, and, you know, you can medicate people and treat the symptoms, but you're not really treating the trauma. So if you don't have a great experience in talk therapy and you don't have a great experience with medication, what the hell do you do? Right. Yoga, equine therapy, songwriting, these things actually really are impactful. And it
0: seems like, too, that the the trauma- it just stays in your body. So yes. your brain may be medicated on a, on a level of science, right? And those in, you know thoughts or whatever might be calmed down, but the trauma is still living in your body. So it's still manifesting in that day-to-day life. So, so does it start with a, you're sort of hearing their stories and whatever, and then you just intuitively get a melody that comes through? Yeah. And, and then when they hear it is sort of when their heart, what do you think it is about? That universe, like universa- universality, is that what I'm trying to say? Of music, that that just, it's immediate when
1: we hear it. Our hearts open. It's a great question. In fact, I just wrote a book about it. It's called no Saved Way. by a Song. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's Whoa. coming out of
1: Macmillan uh, next next August. Saved by a Song. It's a fantastic question, and there's a lot of answers. Okay. Um, one theoretical, maybe even scientific answer is that we think we're made of light the light in our eyes, but what if we're made of music? What if the vibration of life is actually like a violin string, music? Why doesn't that get discussed more? Why is it that we can see people in old folks' homes who are catatonic, you put earbuds in their ears and play the favorite song when they were young and they wake up and start to sing it? They may not know their own children's names and faces, but they know every word to Love me tender. Mm. What is that? It's, what if we're made of music? That's a scientific explanation. Another thing with the veterans and certainly with the foundling I learned is that if you can get to an emotional truth uh, that um, is universal, even inside a trauma, and sing it and people come up to you and say those magic words that Tarana Burke came up with, me too. I've seen so many veterans transformed mm. by that. They, their song reveals their deepest secret around their trauma. It's terrifying for them when the songwriter sings it and they're shaking in fear. But what happens after the song ends is the exact opposite of what they're afraid of. People, their fellow soldiers, surround them with love and put their hands on their shoulders and thank them, and they say those magic words, me too, me too. And what Mm. happens is they know they're Uh. not alone. See, trauma is removal. Something happened that's so bad, you can't find the words for and you're removed, and you can't get back. Music is a bridge back. We got to be in each other's presence for real or we're... We're dying. We belong to each other. We are not made to be alone and removed. And trauma is a severing. Music is a bridge back and Mm -hmm. horses are a bridge back. Um, Yoga and breath are a bridge back. We got to build these bridges back. You know, we're in a crisis with our veterans. We're losing 22 a day. That's pre-COVID to suicide. The numbers after COVID are going to be much higher, mm. and uh, because removal on top of removal, it's unsustainable. It's 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 just a tragedy on top of a tragedy. And um, the music and songs are are way back into the tribe, way back into the group, way back into resonance and connection. Mm. And so uh, there's uh, uh, a power in a song that. I mean, when you hear a song that you love, even if you're not in the realm of trauma, just a song that you love and you go, oh, my God, that's my song. Like, you just sang me my life. Right. And that feeling is that I'm not alone in my emotional experience. Like, that's my song or that's our song, baby. They're playing our song. And this uh, is um, a form of connection that uh, uh, is, is, like you said, somatic. Mm. It's not like, I think we are connected. It's not a thought at all. It's a feeling. feeling. And you happen- it happens in the body. Right. Um, uh, we've been, through Songwriting with Soldiers is the program I have been a part of for the last seven years. And it's a nonprofit that pairs professional songwriters with the veterans. And we're doing Zoom uh, writing with wow. with veterans. Um, we can't do the full retreat that we usually do. So we're Zoom writing with veterans that we've already worked with and doing follow-up songs. Um, but I think um, the, the the challenge is, is to how do you bril- build bridges back mm-hmm. uh, to understand that so many of, of those who've served are feeling disconnected, unappreciated, unseen uh, their families are feeling disconnected, unappreciated, unseen uh, you know uh, a, a, a thing that really works here uh, through the arts and it's not it doesn't have to just be songwriting we got to... We understand that there's a lot of different arts that can express emotion Mm. uh, that maybe there's not words for. Uh, And, um, you know, through the arts and through through creativity, Mm. uh, we can help people find their strengths and uh, and we can help them to articulate what's going on so we can see them. Mm. And once once they can be seen, then they can be embraced in in in. In, in spite of their wound, and maybe because of their woundedness, you know, my my wounds have been the best thing that ever happened to me because it's given me a, a really driving motivation to create, mm. and 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 that that need to create is purpose for me. It's it's like a, "Saved by a Song" is the name of my book, but but it's like I'm grabbing onto creativity as salvation. Mm. That's not a metaphor. That's literal. And, and, and when I'm in the ocean drowning, I, this is what I go for is the arts. You know, it, 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 it is literally the life raft that I'm holding on to. And um, and then I bring it out and go, here's what here's what's going on. And then somebody comes up inevitably and says, oh, my God, I know exactly. That's my story. And I'm like, hallelujah. Right. We're back. We're back together. You know, there's there's it takes the shame and the and the isolation out of it. It it, uh, it doesn't change the emotional reality, but a burden shared is a burden halved. Yes. It's, if other people are going through it too, maybe I don't feel singled out or punished by an angry God. I, this is just what it's like to be human.
0: And it's that feeling you were saying about community and less alone, and, and that's what saves us all even introvert, extroverts, and all of us trauma survivors, everybody. Is your creative process then, it feels like then it must be instinctual in a sense that it comes to you like you've got to get it out of your body almost somatically. Is that how each sort of uh, song you write comes out? Or do you read a lot and then there's research from books, like you said, with The Foundling? Or is it different depending
1: on what you're you're working on? Yeah, it's all of it. All of it. Some some of it is is inspired, some of it is from reading, most of it is from hard work. I'll have a little thing that feels like it might be a song, and then I have to spend two months figuring mm. out what the hell it's trying to tell me. Uh, I'm not a quick writer at all. It's it's like going on a archaeological dig. Cool. I'm trying to find it. I know the dinosaur's under the dirt, <laughs> but I've got a paintbrush. And so we're just gonna, you know dust off what's not it and for however long it takes till we get to it Uh, there's no single single way there's there's uh every possible way in you could imagine from a word to a melody to uh uh, inspiration to a movie to a book to somebody says something or another song inspires something in me It, it, it it every possible way in is is the way in how do you pass through? Have you ever
0: gotten to a point where it'd been months or a month or weeks where there was just nothing coming? Has have, have you ever? Years. years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, years. Do you think coming, because we should talk a little bit about your story of you found music later in life, right? Or or professionally later, but was, were you songwriting through your, you know, 12 year old addictions and trauma? Was songwriting always that healing for you or it developed later into adulthood as, as sort of your practice or? Yeah,
1: no, I got arrested July, July uh, 12th, 1990 for drunk driving. So actually next week I'll be 30 years sober. Wow. Amazing. Um, so July 13th is my sobriety date. Awesome. Happy birthday. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I can't believe 30 years. My God. I'm, awesome. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time metabolizing that, but I will be 30 years sober. So, um, yeah, after I got sober, uh, songs and songwriting started calling to me. Wow. Um, so I was 27 uh, when I got sober, about 33, 34, 35. Started going to open mics with my guitar. And then I came to Nashville when I was 40 and uh, uh, decided I'm going to do this for real. Mm. And, uh, and now I am 58, so... Uh, Uh, Well, you looks so good, girl, so... Thank you. It's the (laughs) the rainbow flag and the twinkle (laughs) lights. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And the rose-colored glasses are very helpful. But, um, yeah, so songwriting and music came after I got sober. I always like to tell people, in all honesty, it works hand-in-hand with recovery for me. Mm. Uh, They're both forms of recovery for me. Recovery itself... Uh, and using the arts to articulate what I'm going through and to uh, nowadays be able to help other people articulate what they're going through is deeply connected to purpose. Mm. Um, sobriety is difficult if you don't have purpose. You've got to find purpose. And if you are in a job you hate or a job that doesn't really feed your soul, mm. um, it's hard to stay sober. Uh, so recovery led me to... To uh to this this creative life that I love so much. And it didn't make sense and it was batshit crazy. And everybody said, nobody goes to Nashville at 40 and gets started, especially if they look as gay as you look, Mary. <laughs> I'm like, eh, what are we gonna do? You know, I'm I'm swimming in the gravy boat. And here we are, this is all just extra time. I should be so dead. And so I did it and I got away with it. And here I sit, uh uh, in Nashville, with, you know, so like, like I said, Americana asked me to do a panel on songwriting for them. Uh, I have uh, every reason to believe that uh, the songs and the calling uh, w- were benevolent uh, and were asking me to do something that would anchor me in purpose. Uh, it's scary to pursue the arts, you know, as an artist, that uh, wow, there's no job security. Never. Um, but there's always another job, and we become mm. really good at the pivot. We can always find our way to uh, something that's next. There's always, you know, ten doors. You push on nine. They don't budge. That tenth one opens. You walk through it, and what you get is ten more doors. And so you push on nine, and that's that's the life of the artist. It's not, it's not secure, but there's always somebody that's willing to let me in their room. Has
0: there never been a struggle for you with marrying passion with when it becomes vocation and commerce? Yes,
1: yes. Um, I tried for maybe about a year here in Nashville to write with commercial writers. Mm. And um, that was uh, thankfully not not something that, uh, it didn't work for me. I didn't like the songs. I wasn't proud of it. It didn't feel like, it's like, God, I I can't do four rights a day on demand. People do it. Wow. Uh, And they're just writing, you know, this little bitty window for a marketplace. They know what's required. You want an upbeat love song about sex. (laughs) Yeah, You know, the the intoxicating uh, early stages of romantic love. And endlessly... That, uh, and that, or partying, drinking—those are the two things radio really wants. And uh, that's not my deal. And honestly, that was um, a good year for me because I realized, you know what? I'll never do that again. I'm gonna write for the for, for beauty, beauty and truth, and nothing mm. else. Like I tried, I hate it. I don't want to do it. If I accidentally write a hit in the name of beauty and truth, yay! <laughs> It doesn't work that way. Hits don't right. barn that way. I didn't write any hits. But I have gotten cuts, and um, I, I do just fine. I don't need that commercial writing life. Uh, those who are good at it are really good at it, and that's just how they write. Right. To, for me, I would bend myself into a pretzel trying to be like them. That's just not my. That's not my strength. There's people who are so, so good at it, and they do it well, and pop songs are are important to the masses. They, mm-hmm. you know, they have their Me Too in them as well. But that's just not my deal. Right.
0: Well, your songs are, are always on repeat at my house, so you're a, you're a hero in me and my husband's book.
1: Yeah, we all could use a little mercy now. I know we don't deserve it. But we need it
0: anyhow Can We listen, oh, mercy now when I'm having a bad day. Woo! Oof, that one's, that's a pretty cool uh, concept. Like, we could all use a little mercy now, especially right now with the political divide.
1: And every single one of us could use some mercy now.
0: Sometimes I listen to that song when I need just a little um, reality check of empathy. And I think I read, I read somewhere in an interview when I was, when I was researching you, Mary, where you said, working with the veterans, there was somewhat of an empathy crisis. And that, that that term, I was like, oh, empathy crisis seems to define what's happening right now.
1: That's where we are. We can't feel each other's hearts. Mm. We're battling each other's ideas and ideologies. And we're not feeling each other's hearts. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, that is an empathy crisis where we, we can't see each other's humanity. We're too busy fighting each other's beliefs. Right. Um, and so the escalation of, um, of ideology, um, it's fascism, actually. Uh, <laughs> and we start to see the binary as true. Us right. and them, us and them. There ain't no them. There's no. only us, one human race. It's a it's a lie that that we fall for over and over and over again. That binary.
0: I've been reading so much about that with Taoism, and their their whole thing is like the curse of binary, because there is no this and that, us and them, good evil, like in that consciousness or that overarching spirit or god or whatever you believe in and and i thought oh my gosh if, if we just let go of binary as as a human race we'd all our hearts would be open and empathy would be there if only you know we could all be buddha and <laughs> and
1: get there but um, we're living in an interesting time though because yes. i think young people are having this discussion on a very serious level absolutely I mean, young people are refusing to allow themselves to be called gay or straight Right. I mean, there's, there's a large number of young people who don't buy even into gender. Right. Uh, and, and they don't want to be man or woman. They're, they're both. They, and they claim it. Uh, and the, the, the pronouns are tricky and don't really fall off the tongue easily. But damn it, there are they. And if that's what the ask is, I will honor that. And I think the world is a better place... Uh, when we don't see things in black and white, democrat mm-hmm. republican right you know man, woman gay, straight black white it's first of all it's bullshit yeah. we're not that what we really are is is a human being uh, having a uh, a go at this short run on this on this planet that we're destroying yeah. because of the binary and greed so we've got we've got our hands full here, but I, I get a lot of hope from the young people who really understand that these these polar opposites are. We live in the middle. We live in shades of gray, and they're just not buying it. And uh, mm. they're wise in that way. This next generation is is wise in that way. Well, we got these protests in Nashville being run by. I think it's called Teens for yes. Justice. Yes. Yes. The freaking thirteen, fourteen. I mean, they're, yeah. And they're, you know, I'm I'm almost sixty, so I'm going to say they're black, white, gay, straight, but they don't see themselves that no. way. They have gotten rid of the binary. They're just the rainbow flag of teens uh, that are leading ten thousand people protest in this town. It's the biggest protest in the history of this town. These kids are in seventh grade, sixth Mm. grade. They're incredible. That gives me tremendous hope. Me too. It's it's. um, you know we're going to we're in for a rough ride yeah. we know that 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 it's this a fight. is these next few months are going to be a bitch you know uh, we we are up against uh, the forces of darkness <laughs> it's um it's it, it's going to be rough but these kids do give me hope and and they're smart uh, and they're well read and they get it on a much deeper level than I did when I was their age me too. And they have to. They have to. They their world's
0: different than our world.
1: <laughs> they've yeah. been handed a pretty difficult world, and um, yeah, those Parkland kids—how they led after Parkland,
0: Emma, yes. and all them—I mean, you're right. Yeah. That's oof, that gives me chills. That's that's the hope I'm gonna hold on to during.
1: Yes, follow young people on yeah. Twitter and watch how they roll. They're amazing. Mm and they're hopeful like they're yeah, leading they're and they're hopeful
0: they're yeah. leading yes yes ooh i love that ooh mary ooh i got the i got the goosebumps <gasps> okay go i want to go young people <laughs> <laughs> Some uh, ending final questions that we ask everybody on this lovely podcast. So can you tell me about an individual or a few individuals who have particularly influenced your creative life
1: or your personal life for both? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think one of the bright lights for me uh, as I became a songwriter who was a teacher from a distance because I was a fan. We lost him to COVID in March, John Prime. Oh, John. Um, John, I, I followed him from that very first record of him sitting on the hay bales. Yes. And I'd go to see him a lot. Uh, and as a fan, I, I followed his writing and just absolutely loved it. Um, I was always a fan of country music. Uh, but I, I liked what John, John put an intelligence in it that transcended where it was. Mm. And he, he put in a, um, he was always a Democrat and he was always, uh, for the people. Yes. Uh, and, uh, for the underdog particularly, but he never preached it. It was just in his songs. And, uh, uh, I had the great privilege after I moved to Nashville of touring with him for a couple years. Wow. And, and I uh, got to know him on the road some and and um, ask him questions and hang out with him and be a part of his world in a, in a way. Um, he's one of the great, for me, teachers. Uh, without a John Prine, I don't know how there would have been a Mary Gaucher. Mm. He opened the door for me to how to do this um, thing that I do. and. Mm. Um, Somehow to make people laugh and cry simultaneously. He had the he had the he had the key to that kingdom. He really did. Mm-hmm. And he always did it simply, which gave me permission. You know, it's always a G, a C, and a D. You know, it was every three chords. Every and now shoes. and then a minor <laughs> chord. He never mucked it up with right with uh, complexity. Um, but boy, he was the Mark Twain of of my world, and. Um, but don't you think I, simplicity is almost uh, more transcendent
0: than complexity, especially when it comes to art and songs? Like
1: I do, yeah, I do. I think that the, that simple is much harder than complex. Actually, right. Uh, simple looks easy. We confuse simple with easy. Simple ain't easy. You've, you've got to have the wisdom uh, of understanding the human heart to be simple and resonate. Because simple can be can be done badly. To be simple and universal and resonate, you've got to have uh, some wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. John. John is the overarching teacher for me. Uh, my grandmother. Uh, I know. I didn't connect beautifully with my parents. They were a mess ball. Uh, I love them both. My father's passed on. My mom's still alive. Um, uh, but the attachment has been strained and difficult and challenging. But I know my grandmother loved me. And, oh. you know, people who survive uh, trauma, especially childhood trauma, they've almost always got that one person that they know loved them. And my grandmother loved me, and I know she did. And the same with my brother. My brother was adopted too. Wow. He, knows, he knows his grandmother loved him. And um, absolutely no holes barred loved us and didn't care that we were adopted. We were hers, and we belonged to her. And if there's a heaven, that's the first person I'm looking for.
0: Me too. (laughs) My other grandma, not my dad's side, my mom's side, died um, two days uh, between John Prine. And John Prine defined my husband and I's love story. We've been together 10 years, and uh, that week, like, you know, she had pneumonia. We don't know if it was COVID, but both of them were probably taken by the pandemic. And and I listened Mm. to Hello in There. Mm, on repeat, mm, those few days, and sang it. My husband plays guitar, and and we just sang it over and over again. And it was sort of my like mourning of them both, but also it helped me through my mourning with of her. But I agree with you. My grandmothers, as soon as I get to heaven, hopefully they're the first two that I want to see too, because they're both huge influences in my in my life as well. Old oh, people just grow lonesome. Waiting for someone to say Hello in there,
1: Yeah, and you just really, really, really know their love yes. is true. True yes. love. They loved us. And we love them. And it's innocent and it's pure and it's, it's eternal. Yes. Yeah. This is just something aside... When you feel that sort of, gosh, should I pursue this relationship with my birth grandmother? I don't want to betray my adoptive grandmother, who's my heart. I say the heart is big enough to love them both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the heart is big enough uh, to love them both with, with um, uh, open hearted passion. Thank you. And uh, I think that uh, love is something that when you give it away, you have more. It, mm. do- it defies gravity it, it doesn't work mathematically on paper yeah but the more you give the more you have so that you can give more it's expansive and adoptive families uh, are in touch with that reality I think more than than your average Joe because this is a relationship formed by choice right and and maybe the uh, the experience uh, is 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 complex and traumatic but it's also a great education mm. in the expansiveness of the heart how how there's much more room the more you give the more you have i love that and my dad always said blood doesn't
0: make family and that's that's always been you know what we say too because you know you're right it's love makes family love makes family yeah mm. absolutely yeah. oh Okay, well, this, I think I might know one of your answers after talking about John, but you can bring three records with you to a deserted island. What would they be and why?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, John's first record for mm. sure. Uh, stack of masterpieces. He wrote it. He wrote those songs while he was delivering mail. He was a mailman right. in Chicago. He wrote them in his head during the day, and then he wrote them down when he got home at night. He wrote them in his head.
0: He didn't have an I, iPhone with a notes section. <laughs>
1: It was like 1970 or something. Yeah, he he just made him up as he was bopping around. Awesome. He told a story once he put the mail in the wrong boxes for an entire two blocks <laughs> and the sun was going down and he realized he screwed up. He had to go back all the way up and down those streets and knock on the doors and say, I'm I sorry. wonder
0: what song.
1: I don't know, but I'm sure it was a good one. Like Sam Stone. He's like, I can't. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I know. It's true story. I didn't know that story. True story. Cool. Yeah.
0: Oh, you got to know him and be with him. Oh, that's just so
1: cool. Oh, I know yeah. what a privilege. What a privilege. And, um, <laughs> I guess the um, uh, Bruce Springsteen Nebraska record, the oh, st- yes. stripped down. I think that was sort of the beginning of Americana music, where he took on the persona of the Starkweather, uh, Star- Charles Starkweather, who was the first American serial killer. I think if you study Nebraska, you can see how it leads a direct way to Trump. Mm. That this this darkness oh, was, yeah. is is predictive. Uh, and that's a, the song about the brother, that yes, yes. You turn your back on your family, you ain't no good, right? So you let him let yeah. him drive off into Canada and get away with what he did. Mm-hmm. Man, what a song! And man, what a challenge uh, uh, we face here in this country to try to to try to to, to 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 make sense of these very human struggles. And and he did it in such a profound way on four tracks yeah. in Nebraska. Those songs are as good as any short story ever written by Raymond Carver. Those four, those songs are incredible. And they're masterpieces, and the boss speaks to me uh, with just an acoustic guitar and a harmonica. Mm. Uh, so that's an important record. And I think I would have to throw a Bob Dylan record on there because Bob Dylan, uh, maybe just go with Blood on the Tracks because, uh, Awesome. oh my God, Tangled Up in Blue. Mm-hmm. I can listen to it a yeah. thousand million times and never ever hear it enough. I love it. Those are amazing yeah. answers, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Um, what subject do you Google
1: the most? Gosh, you know, I Google words that, um, uh, that we use in recovery. I Google them all the time. So like, what is grace? What is forgiveness? What is redemption? Uh, what is mercy? What is, uh, forgiveness. Like I look up definitions Mm. because I think I know what it means. And then I look at one, two, three, four, like there's other aspects of these spiritual words uh, that I haven't contemplated always. I do that too. And so I want to know really what they mean. I'm looking them up all the time. I love that. I have this like weird word dictionary
0: too, that I always like to look at that has words you've never heard of. And then, yeah, I do that. I was just Saying actually on one of our other podcasts, I was looking up the word virtue over and over again because there's so what? many different definitions of virtue. Right. Um, right. And yeah, grace they hit you differently. Grace. I now I'm gonna go after our podcast and do the grace because that's a that's a big word. That's it's
1: been a big coming one. Up. I've got a mem- I got that one memorized. What un-merited is it? Unmerited gift. Ooh, an
0: unmerited gift.
1: Yeah, and it's not, and you don't deserve it. No. You get it because grace is given to you freely by the benevolent force of love yeah and so people who are so punishing don't make room for grace if they call themselves christians and they don't make room for grace they got a real problem with their theology you've right. got to have room for redemption and grace so you're not doing christianity right no. <laughs> you're doing it in a mean <laughs> small uh bitter way there's got to be room in in your theology for redemption. And grace. grace. Yeah. I know.
0: That's where organized religion and power politics, I think, uh, came into play too much. Um, okay. So I'm a huge Dolly Parton fan. So every episode we do a Dolly question because I love her. Um, and it's usually trivia, which you'll probably know this answer. But who was Dolly Parton's first crush in the country music world?
1: God, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't believe her anyway. She's a she's a showwoman to the core.
0: <laughs> well, what I could tell you the answer, or you can guess,
1: but what she I, says. There could it could be an I don't know. I know. Who, who does she say? Johnny Cash, which I was like, hmm, that's pretty sexy. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes I'd sense. I'd be into I, him back then. I'd wow. be like, move over, June. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He, he he, you know he was like he belongs on uh, he belongs on a mountaintop, boy. Mm. Yeah, he was he was something. I actually um, had the had the great thrill this year of hearing Dolly Parton uh, sing on one of my songs. <gasps> Which one? It's a new song I co wrote with Sam Williams, Hank Williams cool. Jr.'s son. Sam and I have been writing, and he approached her through her hairdresser. Oh my God, I love cause, it because it's Nashville. That's how you get to people. So right, he he pitched to her hairdresser this song, and she heard it and she liked it. It it, it uh, is kind of incredible, uh, and he recorded it with her as a duet, uh, and he'll be releasing it. His sister died in a tragic car wreck. I just
0: read that. I'm a big Holly Williams fan. Her music, so I
1: I, I read that on yeah. Her Instagram. Holly's a friend and a mm. sweetie. This is Holly's little brother. And, um, so I'm not sure when it's coming out, but he sent me the track and she sings it so beautifully and to hear Dolly sing words I wrote is just like,
0: wow. I can't even imagine that must be,
1: yeah. Oh my gosh. And that she would do it for him is beautiful. That's beautiful. You know? She seems loyal like that. She seems
0: like she just, love, like she leads with love. She's, yeah, and inclusivity and yeah, all that. Oh, okay, final question. This is called the blank room exercise. So, if you don't mind, close your eyes. Go into a blank room. What are you hearing?
1: The air conditioner. (laughs) What are you smelling? Uh, Sawdust. Mm.
0: What are you tasting? Sawdust. (laughs) What are you touching?
1: (laughs) <laughs> Nothing. What are you seeing? Apparently this room that I'm in is is under construction. Oh, well, there you go. Thank you. Hmm. I guess we're going to do yoga there. We, 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 Let's <laughs> do yoga. We could bring some horses. We could bring a guitar. Let's put some mats down and we'll work through some breathing exercises. Some breathing exercises.
0: <sighs> letting it all out in our bodies. <laughs> I'm in. Mary, you've <laughs> just been the gem of all gems. I feel like I've grown and learned so much from this hour-long talk, and I, I hope someday when the pandemic's over, we can, I can grab your hands in person and give you a hug and and say thank you because this was truly magical and wonderful, and I'll never forget this conversation.
1: Oh, uh, what a great interview! It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for including me in your world. It's, it's a great way to uh, to meet you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Oh, thank you so much to Mary Gauthier for being such an incredible guest. I know I will never forget that interview. If you'd like to learn more about her work with Songwriting with Soldiers, visit songwritingwithsoldiers.org where you can find information on how to get involved and donate to this absolutely incredible cause. Also, head to com to listen to her music and check out everything she currently has going on, including... New virtual songwriting masterclasses. Oh, that's right. You can now learn songwriting from Mary Gauthier. Oh my gosh. That's Mary Gauthier, G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R.com. This episode of Harmonics was produced and edited by Chris Jacobs and is only possible with the superb leadership of executive producer Amy Rightnower Jacobs and the entire team over at The Bluegrass Situation. Check out all of the amazing roots music and culture podcasts they have up on the BGS Podcast Network over at thebluegrasssituation.com theme music by allison russell discover more at allison russell music on instagram and wherever you stream music i'm your host beth bears until next time always remember that creativity is healing and healing is creative